Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, it's Allison. Welcome back to the podcast. I have another interview with an author and a doctor today. Let me introduce to you Dr. Kelly Fraden. She is the Director of Pediatrics at Atria Institute. She's a pediatrician, mother of two, and a child advocate based in New York City. She was inspired to become a doctor because of her experience surviving childhood cancer. A graduate of Harvard College and Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons, she's dedicated her career to caring for children with complex medical conditions in many situations, including academic clinics, private practice, inpatient units, and schools. She shares realistic and empowering parenting advice and children's health information on her Instagram account, which I just am following, (laughs) um, at Advice I Give My Friends. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Really great to meet you, and I really appreciate getting an advanced copy of your latest book called advanced parenting. Uh, so can you say a little bit about um, about what the content of this book is and why you were inspired to write it? Yes. So, you know, as a, as a pediatrician, a lot of times friends would reach out to me for advice. And, and the most common scenario would be, you know, they're walking out of a parent-teacher conference at school or, or a pediatrician's office where they just got some news about their child and they're trying to process it and figure out um, how to make a plan and then how to implement that plan and how to cope with all the stress. And it's, it's a shared experience. You know, so many children have things that are unexpected that we have to troubleshoot and navigate as parents. And, and in some ways that requires a, a different skill set from the everyday parenting of, of dealing with, with everyday child issues. It's like when, when these things go wrong or unexpected, I, I like to think of it as, as advanced parenting. 
gaining the the caregiving skills you need to kind of navigate the systems and be an advocate for your child and and figure things out. So that's that's what the book centers on how to how to fill that gap and how to how to help uh, parents deal with that uncertainty. Well, and what I really appreciated too is the range. When you say like not on the trajectory or with exceptionalities, it wasn't just the severe cases. We often think about those parents who are dealing with like, you know, really difficult hospitalizations and genetic disorders and, you know, feeding tubes. But you take it all the way back to just somebody who turns out they've got a learning disability and they need an EIP. And that still takes us into fresh territory for the first time. Exactly. And and even when somebody does fit into a diagnostic group, like say you have asthma or diabetes, sometimes people don't identify so much with the diagnosis or, or with that community of support. They feel like, you know, th- this is their child and their parenting and and it doesn't feel medical, the experience of navigating what it means both to be a child and to have a diagnosis. And so so I do think it's a very common experience to do this sort of extra work as parents and when we talk about it in that way we also kind of like normalize it and include parents who are dealing with a a lot more you know because it's a shared experience um figuring all this out when you're sort of on your own as as a parent you say there's a real range of reactions that you see along a continuum where you get some parents who are just completely in denial and other parents who are almost catastrophic and, and anxious and exploding with this new overwhelm of information. And, and you give some advice for like, how do we, how do we, how do we find, how do we learn about ourselves in this moment? And how do we find that maybe middle ground that would be more appropriate in the helping role of parenting? I think it can be very helpful for parents to to step back and think about sort of the big picture of their child and their reaction and and where they're coming in. If they're coming in on the anxious side or the sort of in denial side, because what I see often is that affects the success of the plan that you implement. Because it it's if you're if you're too um, too worried and too anxious, you know it might impair your ability to deal with all the other day-to-day stuff on your plate, like parenting your other children, or, or if you have a job, or your marriage, or your, your own well-being. Um, and so there's harms associated with being too anxious about your child or overthinking things. And there's also harms harms about, you know, a lot of people say, are parents really ever in denial? Um, I think some people think that that's less common than it is. But you know what it is, is parents always want their children to be well and to be to be thriving. And sometimes we also get so used to our children's reality and dealing with the day to day that it's just part of who they are, that that this challenge is is part of their reality and day to day. And then we don't necessarily see it as something that might be better with an intervention or if it was addressed, something that would make our lives day to day easier. So denial can be just as much something that happens because of love and close attention as, as the warriors. And, and what I do see often is that, you know, one parent can have a different reaction than the other parent, and that can lead to some conflict. Or even the same parent who normally is, is on the anxious or catastrophic thinking side, sometimes, sometimes they might be another issue that they miss because they're focused on other things. And so it's not that if you're one way or the other, you're that way all the time. So that's why 
um, having a sense of the big picture and taking some time to check in about your reaction can really help set you up for success. And I figure it must be very common in this day and age that the minute you get a diagnosis, you're trying to make sense of that as you're hearing it. And, and I get that that's also could be, that could be a diagnosis that's given um, in utero as you're doing genetic testing, or that could be something where your spidey senses say, I, I think something's off with my kid. I've, I've got to get to the bottom of this. I've been worrying about this for a while until I finally dig through a bunch of tests and get a diagnosis. It can be, it can present in different ways. But I think the first thing I would do, and I think I'm pretty typical, I would do Dr. Google. I would be online researching everything there is to know about what I've just been told. Is that a common reaction? And what are the pros and cons of that? How do we navigate all the information that's out in the world? It's certainly a very common reaction. And I think for most situations, it's a basic step parents have to take to prepare to do the work to support their child. You know, you have to educate yourself on on what you're facing. And it's a way of kind of organizing and collecting potential resources. It's not something we can skip. We just want to be thoughtful about the way in which we do it to make sure we find sources that we can trust. So I talk a little bit about about this in the book about, you know, starting with with the most reliable sources you can find, you know, if there are professional organizations, the the American Academy of Pediatrics, or, you know, depending on what you're facing there, there is a variety of, of sort of gold standard resources for information when you're Googling. To start with those bigger organizations before you end up on people's blogs or in Facebook groups taking advice from other parents, Because it's not that the blogs and the other parents don't have valuable information, they do. But when you read the really um, standard resources first, it gives you like a helpful context to prepare yourself to understand these other, what we call anecdotes. Because other parents have a lived experience that might be similar to yours and you can gain so much information, but without knowing where they live and who their child is and what their resources are and what their experience has been that brought them to this moment, you can never really know how similar your child will be to this, this other child. And so when you read about, when you read the basics first, it sort of gives you a range of what to expect and it can help you understand if what you're reading about is an unusual case or an outlier or something more typical. Yeah. And and so you collect up your information and often these cases, as you say, with complex caregivers, even just with like a learning disability, chances are you're going to be talking to your pediatrician, but also the school and also the teacher and also the, the coach of the soccer team because he's, you know, whatever. Um, there's usually a, a group of people that are involved in the, in the care and planning. So how, how as a parent, do we, do we keep the, how, how do you organize all of that? Not you, you and your husband or partner might not even have the same agreement, but you, you might not always have a teacher who thinks that you've got a valid concern or, you know, they don't want to make your child the special exception. They think if you were just firmer that they would get in line or whatever. I mean, I can imagine you've got to get all these parties lined up with the same kind of case conceptualization and putting in the proper in- interventions and in all these different steps. Like how do we train parents to be case organizers and advocates? It's not in everyone's nature. You know, I think it's such an important point. It's not it's not in everyone's nature. It's not in their skill set. Often parents lack the the time and energy and resources to devote to this very complex task. Um, but but I think it's important to talk about it because when we talk about it, you know, 
that worry work or that work of being the quarterback for your child and and collecting all these different resources and integrating them and synthesizing them so that you can make a good plan it has value and and it's work that does benefit your child and so when we think about you know things like supporting our friends or family who are going through this experience to remember that they need time and space to do this work and it helps us to be more considerate of everyone in our community that that maybe you know we maybe we can help support that work by by being a good friend or family member what would that what would that look like if let's go into the topic of of support we we have to search for it you say there's a, a big benefit in finding your support group um but also somebody who's when you're overwhelmed it's hard to ask for help. Like I think about this in grief work when people say, what can I do? And the person who's grieving is just like, they can't organize themselves to ask for help. You have to kind of just start sending casseroles, take the initiative. So what, <laughs> what would be the, how do we find support and how can we from the outside provide support that would be appropriate? How do we know? Yes. I think it's a great question. I think if you want to be a supporter of someone, of a parent who's facing a challenge, one of the most important things to do is to be curious. So you um, you want to not ask someone for answers that they don't have. I find one of the reasons parents don't reach out for help is because when they don't know early in, like say you have a diagnosis of a possible learning disability and you tell some of your closest friends and family, they... Um, you might anticipate that they will have a lot of questions that you don't know. How significant will this be? What are you going to do about it? You know, how are you going to fix this? And that that can be hard to hear as a parent when you're still like coping with this right at the beginning. So when I say to be curious about it, I don't mean to like quiz the parent, <laughs> but <laughs> but but to be curious about their experience. Like, wow, that sounds like like a lot to take in. How are you doing? Is there anything I could do to help take something off your plate? You know, can your child, can I, can I pick them up from school today while you spend some time figuring this out? Those sorts of supports are often, you know, acknowledging that it's expected that they won't have all the answers right away is probably one of the kindest things you can do. I have to share a personal anecdote just because it just irks me so much, but um, we have um, not allergies in the family. And uh, so when that part of the family moved from Canada, we're, we're very, um, we're very collectively thinking, like if there's a nut allergy in the classroom, it's very common to say no nuts this year, a perfume allergy, please, re- you know, restrain from wearing any fragrances. And we all go, okay, somebody needs our help. And, and we go along with it. But in the States where it's a little bit more individualistic thinking, it's like, how dare you stop my child from having a peanut butter sandwich for breakfast because your kid has a... And my um, this particular family member did assemblies and people booed them off the stage. And when they were on an airplane and they were, said, we aren't offering nuts at this service, the whole plane booed at these children. <laughs> I just thought, we have to do better at, at, at having each other's backs. When I think about how do you support people that have special needs, like we can all lean in a little bit. It's just nuts, people. Just lean in, have a different snack. So anyways, it just reminded me of those stories. <laughs> Totally. And and I will say that that is a common experience with food allergy is a perfect example of something that that is pretty common, you know, like up to 8% of children have a food allergy, depending on the age that you look at. 
And it's something that you have to think about all the time as a parent, every day. And you have to communicate with teachers and coaches and playdates and family members and anticipate cooking extra meals and all that. So so all if you have empathy to the fact that a parent is doing all that work, if we see that work, you know, we we can be more empathetic, we can be better neighbors, we can be better schoolmates. Um, because we can try to to even if we can't fix it, we can not make it worse and we can help them. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And then finding those online communities... I mean, I guess it's, uh, this is again, one of those benefits of social media, as much as we try to slag social media, sometimes there's some real benefits. And I imagine with all the diversity of things that must come up, having a kid with a food allergy is different than somebody with, you know, polycystic ovaries or something. I mean, (laughs) certainly, certainly. I think that there are some real perks to, to these Facebook groups. One is that if you have a more rare situation, like my own childhood cancer, you know, only like 200 people in the country have that every year. So the fact that I can find somebody who had the same thing as me online, I'm probably not going to find that in my city, no matter how, how big it is, because it's just such a rare diagnosis. Um, so that is a real value, especially if you live in a community where you also might not have you know, healthcare providers or educators who are familiar with the condition and you can really like, you know, learn and and advocate for your child. I think the other, the other piece that these support groups can help with are the everyday, the things that might not have, people might not spend time addressing in, in the clinic, you know, um, things like potty training a child who has an underlying um, neurodiversity. You know, uh, you're going to get some support in a 20 minute doctor's appointment about when and how to approach it, but it's, it's relatively limited. So if you can connect with other parents who have been through it, you can learn what worked for them and it can help you refine and consider the best way to approach it for your child. And that, that's really valuable. But then you also, as a parent, have to always think, am I getting more positive out of this experience or is it worsening my anxiety? Because some, some of these groups, um, can be kind of intimidating to see people who maybe feel like they have it all together, they've been through it, um, and it might make you second guess your own choices. So you just want to make sure that you're taking in enough to help your child while not being like overwhelmed by by the content you're consuming. 
I have a friend whose son has a charge syndrome and, um, and he speaks, we've, we've done some writing together around parenting kids with that, uh, uh, genetic disorder or severe disabilities. And, and he said, you know, just even his son was just really fascinated with, um, vacuums. And if he had like little mini vacuums, he could vacuum out. And so he bought like 15, 23, 30 vacuums. <laughs> it's like, you know, you need to hear from other parents. I'm not being indulgent. This isn't silly. It's like nice just to say, look, and I got to get through the day like everybody else. And if this is going to keep him happy and engaged and involved and this is his particular bent then i'm i'm going for it and other people in that community would be like totally get it totally get it whereas somebody outside that community you know might think that that was crazy parenting yes i i like that example because there's so many there's so many um you know conditions where where that might be true where you, you will have like this shared experience and connection in an unexpected way. And, and it can make you feel, um, you know, less alone or overwhelmed by where you're basically like, yeah, you really, you really get it. And you really get me. And that can be really helpful for a parent. And so, you know, when you have one child that's got some kind of special need of any kind or any member of the family, really, but one child in the family, that's got to have a ripple effect on the whole family dynamic. If you're the well or uh, neurotypical or trajectory following sibling, and then you've got a sibling who isn't, how does that, how does that play out in the dynamic? And, and how do we, how do we, with our eyes open, try to navigate that piece? It's, it's so important because we, we do know from, from the scientific literature that the siblings, um, their experience often is, is hard. You know, there's only so much time and energy um, and attention that, that a parent has. And when one child demands more for whatever reason, um, it, can, it can take away from, from the sibling who, who is less urgently needing that attention. But I, I also think it can be an opportunity for growth for that healthy sibling, you know, an opportunity to be a leader and a helper in the, in the household, uh, an opportunity to find that attention and support from other members of the community, you know, whether it's another, another parent, another family member, another, you know, beloved teacher or babysitter, you know, we, we don't have to, as parents, be the only resource we call upon uh, for our families. So, so, you know, I think when parents are are worried about the sibling, they come to me and they ask me about it. And I'm like, the fact that you're worried and this is on your radar means that you've, you've probably got it covered because it, it doesn't matter how you address the need in a lot of ways, as long as that, that child feels loved and supported by someone, um, they're going to be okay. And I think the, the other thing that came up a lot, because I interviewed a bunch of siblings for writing the book, was this idea of being a little helper. Um, because some siblings, they grow up and they seem way more likely to be educators or therapists or doctors because they um, they become very empathetic people and people who who like to be helpers in a lot of cases. But but then what they also talk about when you ask them is that sometimes it felt forced or like they didn't have a choice. And, and the fact is that, especially for a child, whether they're, you know, eight years old, 10 years old, 15 years old, they still have to have their identity outside of being the sibling of somebody else. 
right? So they need to have have their own independent childhood experiences of sometimes not having extra responsibilities or having to do to behave a certain way. So so when possible to allow and empower them to be little helpers, but also to allow them to be who they want to be. Oh, that's that's very powerful advice. <laughs> very powerful advice. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then within within we're talking about siblings, but we earlier gave the idea that sometimes parents don't agree about this. And I've heard some pretty scary statistics, not that I can cite off the top of my head, but um, uh, we have an important hospital here in Toronto called Toronto Sick Kids Hospital. And they say that just having if your child's been admitted for any extended time, the likelihood of divorce, like, I don't know, triples or something. And again, this is not I'm I'm trying to give you the highlights of of research, but it's 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 a it's a real um, disturbance to the coupleship when you have a child that n- needs exceptional care. Uh, is there any mm-hmm. advice that you can give to make sure that we're not the, the divorce statistics because we had to deal with a, a sickly child? Yes. Yes. You know, I, I went down a rabbit hole when I was writing the book about this because, because I ha- was under the same impression that the rates for divorce increase. Um, what's, what's interesting to know is that it's not, um, it doesn't seem to be just the stress or the challenge to the marriage of parenting a, a child with difficulties. What what seems to explain a lot of the statistics is the financial repercussions. Uh, because what happens when a child faces a big challenge, often it draws a parent away from their paid work or you know, there's extra co-pays, there's extra stuff you have to provide, there's extra childcare expenses, and all that financial stress seems to explain most of the increased risk of divorce. And, and I think it's important that people are aware of that because um, because it's a reality that a lot of parents face and they might not feel comfortable talking about it. Um, I, I've had patients of my own, you know, that were prescribed certain, you know, certain therapies or certain uh, medications and and then come back to me and eventually been like, you know, I just can't go to this many appointments because the parking at that doctor's office is actually $40 every time I go. And like, it's just breaking our backs. It's an important part of getting your child through a challenge, dealing with that reality. Um, but once once we know about it and name it as a source of stress, we can try to make a plan to, to mitigate that stress. I, I do think the other tip for supporting your marriage through this is communication because often one parent takes on the vast majority of the work um, and there can be um, there can be resentment about that there can be assumptions about that and it can be difficult to keep everybody up to speed on what the reality of what you're dealing with is and so finding times to, to communicate and check in about what's going on is important, but also protecting a little time to just be married and think about your own selves and your own relationship. You know, it can help. And so that's sort of the final question that I wanted to ask you. And 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 I hope to, I think we have the shared feeling about this. In learning about Tim and his child with charge syndrome and, and, and working and collaborating to write this chapter, he said so much of when you pick up um books and resources for parents that have kids with disabilities or that aren't typically abled, um, they, they kind of spell it out as a bit of a doom and gloom situation. He really wanted to say like, 
Jacob brought so much joy to our lives and there was so much growth and amazing um, things that happened with this, even though he's, you know, nonverbal and feeding tubes and all these neuroplasticities and spasms and all these things that went on that were definitely challenges. But he was like, best thing that ever happened. Greatest joy to our family. So many positives that came um, for, for everybody. And that we never lead with that. You know, we, we, we lead with this brace, grip, you need resources. This is going to be a ride. And, and you, you and wrap up the last part of the book. It's divided into sections. The last part of the book of the book, you know, playing the long game, there's stressors, but there's, there's fun and joy to be had. So can you, can you speak to that? Yes, I think it's so important. And and I'm very thankful to have had some really good mentors when I was going through my pediatric training. And and they always encouraged me to to ask families like what 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 is a good day like for your child? Like what's the best part of your day with your child? And when we learn about about those moments of joy, you know, you you can try to set a family up to have more of those and lean into those because in some ways that's the best cure for feeling burnt out or feeling anxious or depressed. It's not, it's not just to cope with those feelings more, but it's to find the joy and find the fun and, and remember to laugh and remember to hug your family and, and, um, and seek out people in your community who bring, bring you happiness. So, so I do think that's why I called it a challenge in the book, dealing with a challenge rather than dealing with a problem, because like, you know, a challenge is an opportunity for growth. And, and a challenge is something we all face challenges. Um, and, and we don't have to necessarily think, think about these things as doom and gloom, like you said. Yeah. And, and to your point, problem sounds like it's something that needs to be fixed. And this isn't about like fixing children, like they're broken. That, like that whole, the mindset and the language is really important about our, how we frame this and how we approach it and how our kids internalize it. So it matters. That language matters. Yes. And, and, when I first was getting getting the book deal and talking with my agent about the book I wanted to write, she she kept using the word caregiver and and the whole the parallel to you know the, we've talked a lot about caregiving for elderly parents you know like when when you're dealing with with an elderly family member who who is having uh, to need help with their daily living we we use that word caregiving and she's like shouldn't we use that also for parenting children facing these challenges and and while it's true that there is a parallel to, to sort of the extra skills that we use it, you also want to normalize that it's just part of being a parent um sometimes it, it's typical parenting sometimes it's advanced parenting or extra parenting or whatever you want to call it but it's just loving your children and 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 being a family whatever that looks like to you um yeah i sometimes i think being off the trajectory is the hidden gifts there is that I I'm not always so sure our trajectory in modern family life is all that healthy you know we're we're over scheduled we have too much pressure you know I think step off the trajectory how, how good for you that you can everyone should have an individualized learning plan everybody should be thought of you know according to their own unique needs wouldn't it be great if we brought that attitude to every kid on the planet, you know, and forgetting that median trajectory. Is there anything else you wish that uh, parents would know about, about the book, about the concepts? You know, I think I've hit on a lot of the main points. I, you know, I think the, the idea is that there's, you know, something in there for everybody. So I, I do think that it's worth 
a lot of the stories that I share, you know, everything's been anonymized, obviously, but the, the experiences I think are, are really important to understand. So even if your child is not facing a challenge, I think it, it's so important to, to think about this and to look around your community and say like, are, is my school like welcoming for everybody or like, am I unintentionally, um, part of a community that isn't so friendly to everybody. So it's so something that I hope um, it sparks conversation and thought about, about that. And it, it did open my eyes, all the number of case studies or that you, I don't know if you case studies, that's maybe not the right word, but more like the stories and the anecdotes and the bringing the, the point to life through the examples that you give really do make you realize that, yeah, we all have a role in every child's care, right? It takes a village and exactly. we should be familiar with our participation in it, even if it's just as a community member, not necessarily something that might be happening in our um, immediate descendants. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, let me give you a moment. Where can people find you, follow you, get the book? Let me give you the floor to to do some pitch, pitch, lady, pitch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, so I spend way too much time on Instagram at the account advice I give my friends, um, sharing parenting advice and, and information about children's health. I also have um, a newsletter and a website that you can find there um, under the same name. And the book, Advanced Parenting, should be for sale, at, you know, starting April 11th at all the major bookstores. Um, so I hope people will check it out and share it with their friends and family. Amazing. And I will put all the, the handles and links and things in the show notes. So people are one click away from people finding all that information. And thank you so much for, to, to take time with me in your busy day. I'm just saying, you know, a mom, a doctor, now writing books and doing interviews about the books. Uh, you know, <laughs> stay well. You seem to be juggling it beautifully. Oh, thank you. Always trying. So we'll, we'll see. But it was so nice meeting you. And thanks for taking the time to share the, this content. You bet. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast, so thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.